Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and today I'm reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. We're doing chapters 14 and 15 today, chapters 14 and 15. Another close-up, and actually a repeat close-up. We already talked about the 144,000. Well, we're going to talk about them again in chapter 14. Let's begin. Every subject brought up in chapter 14 has been discussed already or will be given a fuller treatment later. But all these events seem to occur near the end. In terms of the book of Revelation itself, we're still in between the trumpet and bull judgments. It seems that we're generally speaking of the days of the seventh trumpet, when all the mysteries of God are being fulfilled. The Spirit is filling in more background pieces before the purely chronological story continues. One could easily suggest that chapter 14 is the least chronological chapter of the entire Revelation. Let's look at verse 1. At the opening, we're on Mount Zion, celebrating the arrival of the 144,000. Here is the completion of what started in chapter 7, with the sealing or saving of these Israelites. Jesus has visited them in the wilderness protected them from the wrath of Satan who hates them. He has sealed them, wooed them, won them to himself. Again, recall that Hosea reading. Let's take a closer look at Mount Zion, where they stand. The name simply means fortification, and such it was in the days when it was conquered by David, a thousand years before Jesus entered it on a donkey. It was a Jebusite fortress on the southeast hill of Jerusalem, says Nelson, where the Kidron and Tyropean valleys meet. Excuse me. Soon it came to mean not only the fortress, but the hill on which the fortress stood, then the city where the hill was located, then the people who lived in the city, the children of Israel. Isaiah, in particular, loved to speak of Zion out of which shall go the law, into which shall flow the ransomed people of God. The Redeemer himself will come to Zion, he said. Zion shall be the source of good tidings for all, and on and on. Jeremiah mentions it a total of 32 times in his prophecy and his lamentation. Likewise, Zechariah and several other prophets. Quite often the prophets speak of the daughter of Zion, and most of the time this is merely a synonym for the daughter of Jerusalem or Israel. All three names are found in Zephaniah 3.14. The statements about Zion in the Gospels and Epistles are quotes from these same prophets. The writer of Hebrews alone stands out as bringing the term to one final stage of development. He sees Zion as God originally saw it, as the place where all the redeemed, not just the Jewish elect, shall congregate, and in fact, they do meet even now. The heavenly Jerusalem, the church, God himself, this is Zion. Put it all together. I say all of that to ask, where is Jesus, the Lamb, standing in Revelation 14.1? Is this a scene of heaven? Then we've just had a rapture of the 144,000 from the wilderness where we last saw them. No scripture elsewhere would support such a thing. 
then has there been yet another Jewish Christian Holocaust? When the 144,000 named the name of Christ, did they become targets for Antichrist? And did God have to take his hand of protection off of them that they might gain a martyr's crown? Do they have their triumphal entry as did the martyrs of chapter 7? Or is this a picture of earth's Mount Zion just after the return of Jesus as he's surrounded first by his Jewish elect? True, the voice of verse 2 seems to be from heaven, but it is wafting down to earth from which the 144,000 were redeemed. It's not a necessary point to make as we've already observed that chapter 14 is out of order chronologically. Zion is a real place, whether in the heavenly city or the old Jerusalem, there is an entity known as Mount Zion, and it's a good name. Perhaps the other things that are going on in this unusual chapter will give us a clue about the location of Mount Zion and the heavenly welcome of the 144,000. Other items of interest about this meeting, look at verse 2, the voice of many waters. We, we heard that in chapter 1, verse 15, the voice of Jesus himself. The harpers we discussed in 5, 8. Verse 3, the singers we've generally identified as the 144,000 Israelites, Jewish in every way. Now more details emerge. First, they have exclusive rights to their own new song of redemption. This seems to be different from the new song sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders of chapter 5, though redemption is the theme of both. A third song of Revelation is sung by martyrs mentioned in chapter 15, probably the same group as in chapter 7. Again, there's a lot of repetition and overlapping. Chapter 14, verse 4, these Jews are virgins. Now, there's much talk by the prophets about the virgin daughter of Zion. For example, in 2 Kings 19.21, Lamentations 2.13. But in each case, case, it's the talk of a father who is speaking by faith about a precious child and a father who has the power to transform from from the guttermost to the uttermost. In experience, Israel had not been a virgin. One could read a father interpretation into this passage too, especially coupled to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11 about presenting the church to Christ as a chaste virgin. We of the church have been forgiven our non-virgin-like character. God has great plans for his people to purify us, to cleanse us, to make us into the image of his dear son. But in this passage is something else. There is a specific statement that these 144,000 were not defiled with women. This is literal virginity, it seems to me, not the spiritual kind that we are all promised. Could it be that those who are forced to flee for their lives by the Holocaust set off by the Antichrist and then spared by the protection of Christ in the wilderness are are young or exceptionally holy people of Israel who have been waiting for the kingdom of God like those four Hebrew children in Daniel? Once they see and accept their Messiah, they follow him like the disciples of old, wherever he goes. And like Nathaniel in John 1.51, they are Israelites indeed, in whom is no guile. 
persons who wanted from the beginning to know God's plan for Israel, and when they find it, they follow it. Yes, all have sinned, but these are without fault because they have experienced Christ's forgiveness. It occurs to me as I speak here that three and a half years when they're all together equals the time that Jesus was with his disciples. You can get a lot done and you can learn to love a lot and follow Jesus a lot in three and a half years. Then these must also be the ones about whom Isaiah and Paul are speaking when they say, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And Romans 11.15, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul lived during the days of a rejecting Israel, but he anticipated their accepting of Christ one day and compared it to a time of life from the dead. And then 11, 25, and 26, hardening in part, this is in Romans, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. If you have been carefully following the story, a question must have arisen by now. If this chapter 14 event takes place on earth, and Jesus himself allures his elect into the wilderness and spends three and a half years with them, how is it that he's pictured later in the book as returning to earth or fighting the Armageddon battle and resurrecting his saints? How does that all fit together? But if the saint, the scene here is heaven, again, how did the 144,000 get there? How is it that Jesus is pictured here as a lamb, but will soon be the returning lion who will destroy all his enemies? Could it be that the allurement to the wilderness was done by the Spirit? Were the 144,000 simply brought there to learn his ways, but Jesus himself was not physically present? They learned it through the preached word and prophetic utterances or whatever. And this picture here becomes his first physical meeting with them at the end of the tribulation, just after the final victory described later in the chapter. I leave all those questions with you. I've come that far. I can't come any farther at the moment, but maybe you can. Let's look at the proclamation angels in chapter 14 again, verses 6 through 13, the proclamation angels. A one, two, three series of announcements by three different angels. I believe these things could be happening simultaneously, or at least in very close proximity to each other, or out of order. I don't believe there need to be any tie-in to each other or to the previous vision of the 144,000. The Jews who were touched by God's grace are now safe with him, whether in heaven or on earth. That's a revelation all by itself. But now we've got some angels with other revelations. They're not necessarily related in this chapter, just close-ups here and there. At around that same time, according to Angel 1, we're going to hear the announcing of the preached gospel. As the law was committed to angels, so has the gospel been charged to them. We don't understand the ministry of heavenly beings 
on the behalf of the spreading of the good news, nor do we need to. But it is stressed elsewhere in the book that before messages of God come to us, they come to an angel, Revelation 2. Jesus said that the gospel will be preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. We've taken that to mean the gradual preaching of Jesus through the centuries, and there certainly can be an application there. But it seems that this gospel right here in this chapter is going to be once and for all proclaimed to the entire planet just before his coming. Is that possible? The 144,000 Jews of verses 1 to 5 are no more tied into that preaching than the angel who's making the proclamation. There is no clear and definite connection here, though you've probably heard that it's these 144,000 Jews that are going to be preaching. Could be, but here again men have theorized and speculated. But remember, these are separate snapshots. Snapshot one, the Jews are mentioned, sealed by God, now with Jesus. Snapshot two, the gospel is being preached everywhere. We found that there are two prophets of God that have had a worldwide ministry during Antichrist's reign. Could not their message have been the same as is recorded here in chapter 14, namely, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, sea and springs of water, Jesus himself. So interspersed with the message of salvation is this prophet-like warning that could well have been sent worldwide by electronic means. Is that what this means? Or those brave saints that have been here all along, are they spreading the gospel message? But the 144,000, they're before the throne of God, it says. They're not preaching, it doesn't say there. That picture could well be out of order. First the preaching, then the return of Christ to his own. I'm not giving a clear answer here because I don't think the text does. But all of these things are happening, generally speaking, roughly the same time. Angel 2, the close-up Babylon Falls, Babylon Falls, and we know this is not exactly happening at the same moment, but we are seeing now the actual fall of Babylon, 14.8, as the visions keep coming one after the other. This fall is not specifically documented until chapter 18, but it is mentioned in passing here, giving us a good sense of the timing of this catastrophe and the other events. The seventh angel has sounded. Warnings are everywhere. Deep into the sixth seal, last things are all in place. Only the final climactic bold judgments still remain. And immediately prior to these last events, or even simultaneous with them, Babylon the Great is once and for all made to fulfill its destiny, spoken at least 2,700 years ago. I've heard the scholars, and so have you, saying how Babylon fell, just like God said. Well, no, Babylon hasn't fallen like God said, but it will. Whatever Babylon means, whether it's a separate city called Babylon again, or Rome, or whatever, it will fall as God said it was going to fall, and that would be quickly, immediately. Angel 3, a warning and a blessing. John has so far brought to mind images from his chapter 7 and Matthew 24 
and his chapter 18. Now he refers to chapter 13, and we'll soon move to 19 and 20. He's not making all this happen. Of course, the Spirit and the angels are directing traffic here, but you tie together all these loose ends into one chapter, and you're going to get a little confused. But he lets us know just how short is the time span of the whole Revelation prophecy by bringing all this together at one place. This passage that we're in now, chapter 14, verses 9 to 13, the warning and the blessing, you tie that to 13, 16 and 17, makes us wonder exactly how worship and the mark of the beast might be one. 13.16 seems to say there is no choice about receiving the mark. Here, I hope you're reading the text along with me, here it is clear that the mark is given to all who worship the beast. And so the concern of the believers in that day and this is that we not give our heart to Satan. The choice not to worship him and therefore receive that mark will result in proper identification being withheld. And without an ID, one will make no financial transactions anywhere. The truly cashless society cometh, but the true church will be exempted from it by choice. And so our secular world will be gradually turned into a religious world after all. What do you mean? Well, Life depends on it. People will give up, give lip service to nearly any creed if they have to. Witness the Church of the Middle Ages, whose membership shamelessly went in and out of the Roman church system, depending on who was in charge of the sword. I shouldn't say the Roman church system there, but the Roman Empire system. But whoever came to the front and said Christians now are going to be persecuted, and if they were in the Roman Empire and they were making rules like that, then people supposedly in the Roman church were gone. Of course, through it all, a remnant church survived, known only in heaven. And so it is today, and so it shall ever be to the end of the tribulation and the world. These precious few are in fact being addressed in this chapter, as in 1615 at the sixth bowl. It could be well that this section, chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, is a part of that same message. Again, I can't give you a chronological order in chapter 14. It's just a bunch of different um, proclamations. Let's talk about eternal judgment next in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 14. Today's church needs to brush up a little on the doctrine of eternal punishment. John pictures in these few verses two classes of people, as he does in his epistle, 1 John 5. He says, we are of God there, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In John's thinking, it was was he, that that is we, excuse me, we and the whole world. John was the son of thunder, remember? He had to learn love and compassion to temper his desire to see sin judged. But now he's given full vent to one message of his heart for those same two kinds of people who lived in the first century are seen fully blossomed and ripe for final judgment, we and the whole world. One group is called to glory, the other to eternal shame. But this is no mere slap on the wrist. This is eternal. This is full strength. Verse 10, look at it. This is torment. 
fire, brimstone. Remember, John, shall we call fire from heaven? Yes, we shall, John, now. This is forever, burned up and forgotten? No. No, it says no rest day or night forever. Any doctrine of hell that does not measure up to this word of God is watered down so as not to offend. Beware of it. Now, verses 12 and 13, a word of comfort. We've heard about this patience of the saints in 13.10. This is the, the true church, defined unmistakably as keepers of God's law and Jesus' faith, remaining faithful amid unspeakably evil days. They are here given encouragement to carry on, even unto death, as the believers will be seeing people die all around them, and they'll be thinking back on those words of the TV, TV preachers who told them that nothing could ever defeat them, they will need this very word of encouragement. Death is not only acceptable, but it's now a blessing. You've worked hard. You've been faithful. Now come on home and rest. I'll be waiting for you. I won't forget what you did here. Now we move on to another close-up, still in chapter 14. Suddenly, it's the return of Jesus again. Uh, he's, he's coming back again. Yeah, some people were, I see as I was looking over some commentaries, they're looking at the third coming now, the third coming of, no, there's no third coming. There's only a second, but Book of Revelation talks about it many times. Finally, in chapter 14, there's a graphic description of the return of Christ, which will be covered in much greater detail in chapter 19. Now, this collection, as I said, of end-of-all-occurrences would not be complete without this most significant event of all. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus is seen as a harvester with a sickle. The imagery here is, a, is akin to that of the prophet Joel, whose third chapter is a treatise on God's end-time judgment of the nations. Joel 3 says God will gather all nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He assembles all these people groups to do his bidding. Then he sits as judge. In fact, Jehoshaphat means Jehovah is judge. Jewish tradition, according to Nelson, has it that this valley is that part of the Kidron Valley between the temple and the Mount of Olives. Now that would fit with Zechariah 14. When Jesus returns to earth, his feet will touch down on Olivet, Mount of Olives. From there, after the battle is over, it's just a short walk to Jehoshaphat, where, as in Matthew 25, he assembles all the nations for the parceling out of rewards. Put in the sickle, says the record in Joel and John. This is harvest time. It appears to me additionally that this first look at the harvest, with its absence of violence and blood, could easily be a picture of the rapture of the church. Oh yes, I still believe in the catching away of the bride of Jesus from the earth. Those who have misplaced it have not destroyed it. Jesus will come for his own. And this could be that final harvesting of souls when the dead in Christ rise and those who are alive and remain rise up to meet him. He comes on the clouds of heaven, both in Matthew twenty-four thirty, and right here. 
Though there are angels involved in this process, the Spirit pictures this operation as being done personally by the Son of God. He gathers us unto himself before he continues his work of vengeance on the nations. We'll see more of this in chapter 19. Well, let's go to chapter 19 just for a moment. Um, it's actually previewed next in, in 14, where we are, verses 17 to 20. Now he's appearing as a gatherer of grapes with a similar sickle. The grapes are thrown into a wine press by an angel, and then Christ comes and tramples the press. But blood, not grape juice, is pressured out of this cluster. This will be a time of unutterable violence and bloodshed. Jesus summons an angel to do this bloody business, yet his own word, the sword coming from his mouth, is employed also. Same picture is told in Isaiah 63, where the the one who is mighty to save is dressed in red-stained apparel. He explains his unusual appearance in terms of a wine press that he has trodden alone. He says, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, brought down their strength to the earth. Isaiah speaks similarly of this in his 34th chapter, verses 1 to 4. More more bloody details will come in chapter 19, as I said, and as Christ confronts a waiting army. Some notes on 1420. What are furlongs? It's talking about furlongs. Again, open your Bible now because I'm not reading entire text. I want you to see what we're talking about when we ask about furlongs. The word is stadios in Greek. Comes uh, came to be the distance of the race course in ancient stadiums, about an eighth of a mile. And so <clears throat> 1,600 stadia would be nearly 200 miles, roughly the size of the land of Israel. Uh, Some commentaries place all of this bloodshed near the city of Rome or Babylon. But it seems to me that Babylon's fall is just before the coming of Jesus. I won't say that that's it, but that's quite possibly true. Caused by the Antichrist and not directly by Christ, as is happening here. Regardless of the place of this final outpouring, the destruction is so immense as to be beyond our comprehension. 200 miles of blood, up to four feet deep in some places. What about horses in battle? This could be actual horses as we know them. They're still used in military ways in some parts of the world. Or those other horses uh, to whom we were introduced in chapter 9, verse 17, or Or, number three, like the sickle, the harvest, the vine, and the winepress, merely a symbolic portion of the vision meant to communicate to readers of all ages. Is this Armageddon, referred to in the sixth bowl judgment and the sixth trumpet? All the enemies of Christ will attempt to unseat him and will die horrible deaths in earth's final battle at the coming of Jesus. This story will be told again. Twice, in fact, before the end of the book. And so we come to chapter 15, an introduction to the seven bowl judgments. We won't cover those judgments today, but we'll cover the introduction, which, as I said, is chapter 15. Now, 
the end, as you've noticed, has come and gone again. Any further talk of judgment must be a close-up or a review of something that's already covered. And this is where the bowls come in. Now, in the sixth seal, in the seventh trumpet days, in which the seven bowls are poured out, the intensity is raised even more. You'll recall that the first four seals spoke of 25% of the earth being controlled by evil. And the first six trumpets spoke about 33% of the people being killed. But now at the grand climax of it all, the figure seems to be 100%. Not everybody killed, but, uh, well, you'll see what I mean. The bulls are where the wrath of God finds its ultimate fulfillment. Reading through Revelation as though it were chronological would definitely cause one to believe that the wrath falls at least three times. But in fact, this is one event recorded in three places. Chapter 6, at the end of the sixth seal, the great day of his wrath has come. 11.18, during the days of the seventh trumpet, your wrath has come. And now, 15.1, the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Let's look at the first few verses here of chapter 15. We're now talking of the period before the end of the seventh trumpet. Notice that believers who overcome are mentioned first. That's the pattern in in chapter 7 also. The overcomers of 15.2 here are the same saints as those who come out of great tribulation in 7.14 during the sixth seal. They're identical also to the ones who overcame him by the blood of the Lamb mentioned just after the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is a continuing theme. Those who die in Jesus are welcomed home. There's a praise service when they arrive, but not all are yet present. In chapter 16, during the height of the bold judgment, Jesus calls out to his own a warning, an encouragement to be faithful. Verse 2 talks about a sea of glass. Uh, The mention of this beautiful part of the throne room and the harps takes us all the way back to chapter 4. A heavenly scene precedes the revealing of the scroll in chapters 4 and 5. There's heaven also before the trumpet soundings of chapter 8. More heaven comes at the proclamation of the three angels in chapter 14. And now, still more at this pre-wrath scene. One more view is to come. Chapter 19 shows what is happening in heaven just before Jesus comes. It's so important that readers of this book and listeners to these series keep their eyes fixed on this heavenly portrait and all of the heavenly portraits in the book so as to understand the holiness and power of Almighty God and his justice in doing what he does. Verse 2 talks about the Antichrist. Notice the tie-in to chapter 13's discussion of the man of sin here at the end of verse 2. His person, his image, his mark, his number, all defeated. Verses 3 and 4, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. There are two songs of Moses recorded in Scripture. One's in Exodus 15. That was the song of deliverance from Egypt and victory. The introductory words call it the song of Moses and the children of Israel. It's probably the one meant here because a portion of the two passages are the same. 
You, if you read 15.4, first part, and Exodus 15.14, you'll see they're the same. Another song, and this one is specifically belonging to Moses, it's called a prayer of his, is what we know of as Psalm 90. This is a song of the eternity of God and the frailty of man. In my opinion, this would also be an appropriate message here. In both cases, the phrase Song of Moses means the song composed and or sung by Moses. But what of the Song of the Lamb? Except for the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore it's all of the Lamb, I'm not aware of a song sung particularly by Jesus, the Savior, or composed by him for the church to sing. In the book of Revelation, we have already seen in chapter 5 the new song sung by the living creatures and elders to the Lamb who has taken the book and redeemed us to God and made us kings and priests to reign with him on earth. More to the point, that same group of praisers being discussed here in 15 is singing a song to the Lamb because of his salvation. Is this the song of the Lamb? Or is there coming to his people a song created and sung specifically by Jesus? I think Zephaniah, the prophet, answers that to a degree when he talks about how he's going to sing over us. People want to claim that for today a lot, I hear. But there's coming a day when he will sing over his victorious people. God does sing. It's mentioned in Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 6. It's mentioned in Hebrews 2, 12. Our God is a musician. He loves music, and that's why he's given it to us. Well, 15.5 to 16.1 is where the directive is given. The mood changes. The praise meeting is suspended. And from the inner sanctuary of the temple, meaning perhaps the very presence of God as he really is, come seven most final angels. In passing, note the golden belt or sash on each one. Jesus himself wears this heavenly gold in one thirteen. It would seem in Daniel 15.6, speaking of a certain man, that same thing is there. The dress of heaven is uniform and glorious. Well, there is tension in the air. An announcement is made that the temple is to be off limits until this business on earth is settled. Smoke fills the temple to emphasize the point. Remember Isaiah 6, smoke fills the temple. God's mercy has waited long enough and must now become, as far as the damned are concerned, a thing of the past. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of order. God's order shall now be brought to the planet. Forever we shall praise him for his mercy. But the invitation to a grace-filled salvation is now closed. 15.5, the unusual joining of temple, tabernacle, testimony. We've got to consider that a little bit before we move on. Where have we heard those three words before? What do they mean now? The temple was always the place where the glory of God could be revealed. It was never meant to be a pattern for modern church buildings, either in name or structure. It's a model of the spirit-filled church, the body of Christ and Christ himself. And yet even the word temple does not say it all. The Jewish temple had a very holy place. And twice in the book of Revelation, we're privileged to gaze inside to ascertain what God might say to us from there. 
Did I say twice? Look in 11.19. At the very end of the trumpet soundings, a a verse sounding very much like the one in front of us right here. It talks about an open temple wherein is seen the Ark of the Covenant. Presently, we see the tabernacle of the testimony in 15.5. It seems to me these two phrases are one and this event is one. Where the trumpets have left off, the bowls will now begin, or there is a oneness in those judgments too. Chapters 12, 13, 14, and the first part of 15 are merely close-ups and asides. The train of thought now continues, and 15.5 is the signal. Why testimony? What's that word? It's used in reference to temple furnishings, but very rarely. Its first mention is Exodus 16:34. Most of the time after this, it's used in connection with the Ark. The Ark of the Testimony seems to be a synonym for the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25:16, coupled with 31:18, we see the Ten Commandments engraved on two tablets of stone being carefully placed in this wooden box. And from that time on, This is the box of the Decalogue, the box of the covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. Here in Revelation, it could be that the other name for a portable house, tabernacle, is used for the box, or this is the testimony in the tent of worship. Whichever understanding is meant, before God's final judgment, we see heaven's doors open. We see the presence of God manifested. And the heart of God, his very word, seemed to be the driving force of all. Soon the tabernacle of God, wherein is his word, will be with man forever. This is a transition time, not only in the book of Revelation, but concerning all history. God has loved this evil planet so much. When he made it, he knew he had made a good thing. And now he shall cleanse it of the evil and begin the process of moving in. Hallelujah. Great day coming, great day, but first, the judgment. We'll talk about the judgment of the seven bowls next time. Thank you so much again for being here. Uh, This is a message, as I've said many times now, that I really want to get out. The, The book of Revelation needs to be heard by God's people. We're moving into times that could well be the times that are spoken of here. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, uh, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.